0: The Screwfly Solution by Alice Sheldon. The young man, sitting at two degrees north, seventy five degrees west, sent a casually venomous glance up at the non functional shoefly ventilator and went on reading his letter. He was sweating heavily, stripped to his shorts in the hot box of what passed for a hotel room in Kaiapan. How do other wives do it? I stay busy-busy with the Ann Arbor Grant Review programs and the seminars, saying brightly, Oh yes, Alan is in Columbia setting up a biological pest control program, isn't it wonderful? But inside, I imagine you being surrounded by 19-year-old raven-haired cooing beauties, everyone panting with social dedication and filthy rich, and 40 inches of bosom busting out of her delicate lingerie. I even figured it in centimeters. That's 101.6 centimeters of busting. Oh, darling darling, do what you want, only come home safe. Alan grinned fondly, briefly imagining the only body he longed for, his girl, his magic Anne. Then he got up to open the window another cautious notch. A long, pale, mournful face looked in. A goat. The room opened on the goat pen. The stench was vile. Air anyway. He picked up the letter. Everything is just about as you left it, except that the Peedsville horror seems to be getting worse. They're calling it the Sons of Adam Cult now. Why can't they do something, even if it is a religion? The Red Cross has set up a refugee camp in Ashton, Georgia. Imagine, refugees in the USA. I heard two little girls were carried out all slashed up. Oh, Alan. Which reminds me, Barney came over with a wad of clippings he wants me to send you. I'm putting them in a separate envelope. I know what happens to very fat letters in foreign POs. He says, in case you don't get them, What do the following have in common? Piedsville, Sao Paulo, Phoenix, San Diego, Shanghai, New Delhi, Tripoli, Brisbane, Johannesburg, and Lubbock, Texas. He says the hint is, remember where the intertropical convergent zone is now. That makes no sense to me, maybe it will to your superior ecological brain. All I could see about the clippings was that they were fairly horrible accounts of murders or massacres of women. The worst was the New Delhi one about rafts of female corpses in the river. The funniest was the Texas Army officer who shot his wife, three daughters, and his aunt because God told him to clean the place up. Barney's such an old dear. He's coming over Sunday to help me take off the downspout and see what's blocking it. He's dancing on air right now since you left his spruce budworm moth anti-pheromone program finally paid off. You know he tested over 2,000 compounds? Well, it seems that good old 2097 really works. When I asked him what it does, he just giggles. You know how shy he is with women. Anyway, it seems that a one-shot spray program will save the forests without harming a single other thing. Birds and people can eat it all day, he says. Well, sweetheart, that's all the news, except Amy goes back to Chicago to school Sunday. The place will be a tomb. I'll miss her frightfully in spite of her being at the stage where... I'm her worst enemy. The solemn, sexy subteens, Angie says. Amy sends love to her daddy. I send you my whole heart, all that words can't say. Your Anne. Alan put the letter safely in his note file and glanced over the rest of the thin packet of mail, refusing to let himself dream of home and Anne. Barney's fat envelope wasn't there. He threw himself on the rumpled bed, yanking off the light cord a minute before the town generator went off for the night. In the darkness, the last of places Barney had mentioned spread themselves around a misty globe that turned, troublingly, briefly, in his mind. Something... But then the memory of the hideously parasitized children he had worked with at the clinic that day took possession of his thoughts. He set himself to considering the data he must collect. Look for the vulnerable link in the behavioral chain. How often Barney, Dr. Barnhard Braithwaite, had pounded it into his skull. Where was it? Where? In the morning, he would start work on bigger cane fly cages. At that moment, five thousand miles north, Anne was writing. Oh, darling, darling, your first three letters are here. They all came together. I knew you were writing. Forget what I said about swarthy heiresses. That was all a joke. My darling, I know... I know... us. Those dreadful cane fly larvae, those poor little kids... If you weren't my husband, I'd think you were a saint or something. I do, anyway. I have your letters pinned up all over the house. Makes it a lot less lonely. No real news here, except things feel kind of quiet and spooky. Barney and I got the downspout out. It was full of a big, rotted horde of squirrel nuts. They must have been dropping them down the top. I'll put a wire over it, but don't worry. I'll use a ladder this time. Barney's in an odd, grim mood. He's taking this Sons of Adam thing very seriously. It seems he's going to be on the investigation committee if that ever gets off the ground. The weird part is that nobody seems to be doing anything, as if it's just too big. Selena Peters has been printing some acid comments, like, When one man kills his wife, you call it murder, but when enough do it, we call it a lifestyle. I think it's spreading, but nobody knows because the media have been asked to downplay it. Barney says it's being viewed as a form of contagious hysteria. He insisted I send you this ghastly interview, printed on thin paper. It's not going to be published, of course. The quietness is worse, though. It's like something terrible was going on just out of sight. After reading Barney's thing, I called up Pauline in San Diego to make sure she was all right. She sounded funny, as if she wasn't saying everything. My own sister. Just after she said things were great, she suddenly asked if she could come and stay here a while next month. I said come right away, but she wants to sell her house first. I wish she'd hurry. Oh, the diesel car is okay now. It just needed its filter changed. I had to go out to Springfield to get one, but Eddie installed it for only $2.50. He's going to bankrupt his garage. In case you didn't guess, those places of Barney's are all about latitude 30 degrees north or south. The horse latitudes. When I said not exactly, he said to remember the equatorial convergence zone shifts in winter and to add in Libya, Osaka, and a place I forgot. Wait. Alice Springs, Australia. What this has to do with anything, I asked. He said, Nothing, I hope. I leave it to you. Great brains like Barney can be weird. Oh, my dearest. Here's all of me to all of you. Your letters make life possible, but don't feel you have to. I can tell how tired you must be. Just know we're together. Always. Everywhere. Your Anne. Oh, P.S., I had to open this to put Barney's thing in. It wasn't the secret, police. Here it is. I'll love again. A. In the goat-infested room where Alan read this, Rain was drumming on the roof. He put the letter to his nose to catch the faint perfume once more and folded it away. Then he pulled out the yellow flimsy Barney had sent and began to read, frowning. Peedsville Cult slash Sons of Adams Special Statement by Driver Sergeant Willard Muse, Globe Fork, Arkansas We hit the roadblock about 80 miles west of Jacksonville. Major John Hines of Ashton was expecting us. He gave us an escort of two riot vehicles headed by Captain T. Parr. Major Hines appeared shocked to see that the NIH medical team included two women doctors. He warned us in the strongest terms of the danger. So Dr. Patsy Putman, Urbana, Illinois, the psychologist, decided to stay behind at the Army cordon. But Dr. Elaine Fay, Clinton, New Jersey, insisted on going with us, saying she was the EPA-something epidemiologist. We drove behind one of the riot cars at 30 miles per hour for about an hour without seeing anything unusual. There were two big signs saying, Sons of Adam Liberated Zone. We passed some small pecan packing plants and a citrus processing plant. The men there looked at us, but did not do anything unusual. I didn't see any children or women, of course. Just outside Pedsville, we stopped at a big barrier made of oil drums in front of a large citrus warehouse. This area is old, sort of a shanty town and trailer park. The new part of town with the shopping center and developments is about a mile further on. A warehouse worker with a shotgun came out and told us to wait for the mayor. I don't think he saw Dr. Elaine Fay then. She was sitting sort of bent down and back. Mayor Blunt drove up in a police cruiser and our chief, Dr. Premack, explained our mission from the Surgeon General. Dr. Premack was very careful not to make any remarks insulting to the mayor's religion. Mayor Blunt agreed to let the party go on into Peedsville to take samples of the soil and water and so on and talk to the doctor who lives there. The mayor was about 6'2", weight maybe 230 or 240, tanned, with grayish hair. He was smiling and chuckling in a friendly manner. Then he looked inside the car and saw Dr. Elaine Fay and he blew up. He started yelling we all had to get the hell back but Dr. Premack managed to talk to him and cool him down, and finally the mayor said Dr. Fay should go into the warehouse office and stay there with the door closed. I had to stay there too and see she didn't come out, and one of the mayor's men would drive the party. So the medical people and the mayor and one of the riot vehicles went on into Peedsville, and I took Dr. Fay back into the warehouse office and sat down. It was real hot and stuffy. Dr. Fay opened a window, but when I heard her trying to talk to an old man outside, I told her she couldn't do that and closed the window. The old man went away. Then she wanted to talk to me, but I told her I did not feel like conversing. I felt it was real wrong, her being there. So then she started looking through the office files and reading papers there. I told her that was a bad idea. She shouldn't do that. She said the government expected her to investigate. She showed me a booklet or magazine they had there. It was called Man Listens to God by Reverend Micklehenny. They had a carton full in the office. I started reading it, and Dr. Fay said she wanted to wash her hands so I took her back along a kind of enclosed hallway beside the conveyor to where the toilet was. There were no doors or windows, so I went back. After a while, she called out that there was a cot back there she was going to lie down. I figured that was all right because of the no windows. Also, I was glad to be rid of her company. When I got to reading the book, it was very intriguing. It was very deep thinking about how man is now on trial with God, and if we fulfill our duty, God will bless us with a real new life on Earth. The signs important show it. It wasn't like, you know, Sunday school stuff. It was deep. After a while, I heard some music and saw the soldiers from the other riot car were across the street by the gas tanks, sitting in the shade of some trees and kiddin' with the workers from the plant. One of them was playing a guitar. Not electric, just plain. Looked so peaceful. Then Mayor Blunt drove up alone in the cruiser and came in. When he saw I was reading the book, he smiled at me sorta fatherly, but he looked tense. He asked me where Dr. Faye was, and I told him she was lying down and back. He said that was okay. Then he kind of sighed and went back down the hall, closing the door behind him. I sat and listened to the guitar man trying to hear what he was singing. Felt really hungry. My lunch was in Dr. Premack's car. After a while, the door opened and Mayor Blunt came back in. He looked terrible. His clothes were messed up, and he had bloody scrape marks on his face. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me hard and fierce, like he might have been disoriented. I saw his zipper was open and there was blood on his clothing and also on his private parts. I didn't feel frightened. I felt something important had happened. I tried to get him to sit down, but he motioned me to follow him back down the hall to where Dr. Fay was. You must see, he said. He went into the toilet and I went into a kind of little room there where the cot was. The light was fairly good, reflected off the tin roof from where the walls stopped. I saw Dr. Fay lying on the cot in a peaceful appearance. She was lying straight, her clothing was to some extent different, but her legs were together. I was glad to see that. Her blouse was pulled up, and I saw that there was a cut or incision on her abdomen. The blood was coming out there, or it had been coming out there, like a mouth. It wasn't moving at this time. Also, her throat was cut open. I returned to the office. Mayor Blunt was sitting down, looking very tired. He had cleaned himself off. He said... I did it for you. Do you understand? He seemed like my father. I can't say it better than that. I realized he was under a terrible strain. He had taken a lot on himself for me. He went on to explain how Dr. Fay was dangerous. She was what they call a crypto-female, the most dangerous kind. He had exposed her and purified the situation. He was very straightforward. I didn't feel confused at all. I knew he had done what was right. We discussed the book, How Man Must Purify Himself and Show God a Clean World. He said some people raise the question of how can man reproduce without women, but such people missed the point. The point is that as long as man depends on the old filthy animal way, God won't help him. When man gets rid of his animal part, which is women, this is the signal God is awaiting. Then God will reveal the new true clean way. Maybe angels will come bring in new souls, or maybe we'll live forever, but it's not our place to speculate only to obey. He said some men here had seen an angel of the Lord. This was very deep. It seemed like it echoed inside me. I felt it was inspiration. Then the medical party drove up, and I told Dr. Premack that Dr. Fay had been taken care of and sent away, and I got in the car to drive them out of the liberated zone. However, four of the six soldiers from the roadblock refused to leave. Captain Parr tried to argue them out of it, but finally agreed they could stay to guard the oil drum barrier. I would have liked to stay, too. The place was so peaceful, but they needed me to drive the car. If I had known there would be all this hassle, I never would have done them the favor. I'm not done—I'm not crazy. I've not done anything wrong. My lawyer will get me out. That's all I have to say. In Kiopon, the hot afternoon rain had temporarily ceased, as Alan's fingers let go of Sergeant Willard Mews's wretched document he caught sight of pencil scrawled words in the margin barney's spider hand he squinted man's religion and metaphysics are the voices of his glands Schonweiser, eighteen seventy eight who the devil Schonweiser was alan didn't know but he knew what barney was conveying this murderous crackpot religion of mchusis was a symptom not a cause Barney believed something was physically affecting the Peedsville men, generating psychosis, and a local religious demagogue had sprung up to explain it. Well, maybe. But cause or effect, Alan thought only of one thing, 800 miles from Peedsville to Ann Arbor. Ann should be safe. She had to be. He threw himself on the lumpy cot, his mind going back exultantly to his work. At the cost of a million bites and cane cuts, he was pretty sure he'd found the weak link in the cane fly cycle. The male mass mating behavior. The comparative scarcity of ovulent females. It would be the screw fly solution all over again with the sexes reversed. Concentrate the pheromone. Release sterilized females. Luckily, the breeding populations were comparatively isolated. In a couple of seasons, they ought to have it. Have to let them go on spraying poison meanwhile, of course. Damn pity. It was slaughtering everything and getting in the water, and the cane flies had evolved to immunity anyways. But in a couple of seasons, maybe three... They could drop the cane fly populations below reproductive viability. No more tormented human bodies with those stinking larvae in the navel passages and brain. He drifted off for a nap, grinning. Up north, Anne was biting her lip in shame and pain. "'Sweetheart, I shouldn't admit it, but your wife is a bit jittery. Just female nerves or something, nothing to worry about. Everything is normal up here.' It's so eerily normal. Nothing in the papers. Nothing anywhere except what I hear through Barney and Lillian. But Pauline's phone won't answer out in San Diego. The fifth day, some strange man yelled at me and banged the phone down. Maybe she's sold her house. But why won't she call? Lillian's on some kind of Save the Women committee, like we were an endangered species. (laughs) You know Lillian. It seems the Red Cross has started setting up camps. But she says, after the first rush, only a trickle are coming out of what they call the affected areas. Not many children either, even little boys. And they have some air photos around Lubbock showing what look like mass graves. Oh, Alan. So far it seems to be mostly spreading west. But something's happening to St. Louis. They're cut off. So many places seem to have just vanished from the news. I had a nightmare that there isn't a woman left alive down there. And nobody's doing anything. They talked about spraying with tranquilizers for a while, and then that died out. What could it do? Somebody at the UN had proposed a convention on, you won't believe this, femicide. Sounds like a deodorant spray. Excuse me, honey, I seem to be a little hysterical. George Searles came back from Georgia talking about God's will. Searles, the lifelong atheist. Alan, something crazy is happening. But there are no facts. Nothing. Nothing. The Surgeon General issued a report on the bodies of the Rawway Rip Breast Team. I guess I didn't tell you about that. Anyway, they could find no pathology. Milton Baines wrote a letter saying in the present state of the art we can't distinguish the brain of a saint from the psychopathic killer, so how could they expect to find what they don't know how to look for? Well, enough of these jitters. It'll all be over by the time you get back. Just history. Everything's fine here. I fixed the car's muffler again and Amy's coming home for the vacations. That'll get my mind off faraway problems. Oh, something amusing to end with. Angie told me what Barney's enzyme does to the spruce budworm. It seems it blocks the male from turning around after he connects with the female, so he mates with her head instead. Like clockwork with a cog missing. They're going to be some pretty puzzled female spruce worms. Now why couldn't Barney tell me that? He really is such a sweet child, dear. He's given me some stuff to put in as usual. I didn't read it. Now don't worry, my darling. Everything's fine. I love you. I love you so. Always. Always. Your Anne. Two weeks later, in Kiapon, when Barney's enclosure slid out of the envelope, Alan didn't read them either. He stuffed them into the pocket of his bush jacket with a shaking hand and started bundling his notes together on the rickety table, with a scrawled note to Sister Dominique on top. Anne... Anne, my darling. The hell with the cane fly. The hell with everything except that tremor in his fearless girl's handwriting. The hell with being five thousand miles away from his woman, his child, while some deadly madness raged. He crammed his meager belongings into his duffel. If he hurried, he could catch the bus through to Bogota and maybe make the Miami flight. In Miami, he found the plane's north jammed. He failed a quick standby. Six hours to wait. Time to call Anne. When the call got through some difficulty, he was unprepared for the rush of joy and relief that burst along the wires. Thank God, I can't believe it. Oh, Alan, my darling, are you really... I can't believe... He found he was repeating, too, and all mixed up with the cane fly data. They were both laughing hysterically when he finally hung up. Six hours. He settled in a frayed plastic chair opposite Aerolinius Argentinus, his mind half back at the clinic, half on the throngs moving by him. Something was oddly different here, he perceived presently. Where was the decorative fauna he usually enjoyed in Miami? The parade of young girls in crotch-tight pastel jeans? The flounces, boots, wild hats and hairdos, and startling expanses of newly tanned skin? The brilliant fabrics barely confining the bob of breasts and buttocks? Not here, but... wait. Looking closely, he glimpsed two young faces hidden under unbecoming parkas, their bodies draped in bulky, nondescript skirts. In fact, all down the Long Vista he could see the same thing. Hooded ponchos, heat-on clothes, and baggy pants, dull colors. A new style? No, he thought not. It seemed to him their movements suggested furtiveness, timidity. And they moved in groups. He watched a lone girl struggle to catch up with others ahead of her, apparently strangers. They accepted her wordlessly. They're frightened, he thought. Afraid of attracting notice. Even that grey-haired matron in a pantsuit resolutely leading a flock of kids was glancing around nervously. And at the Argentine desk, opposite, he saw another odd thing. Two lines had a big sign over them. Mujeres. Women. They were crowded with the shapeless forms, and very quiet. The men seemed to be behaving normally, hurrying, lounging, griping and joking in the lines as they kicked their luggage along. But Alan felt an undercurrent of tension, like an irritant in the air. Outside, the line of storefronts behind him, a few isolated men seemed to be handing out tracts. An airport attendant spoke to the nearest man. He merely shrugged and moved a few doors down. To distract himself, Allen picked up a Miami Herald from the next seat. It was surprisingly thin. The international news occupied him for a while. He had seen none for weeks. It, too, had a strange, empty quality. Even the bad news seemed to have dried up. The African war which had been going on seemed to be over or went unreported. A trade summit meeting was haggling over grain and steel prices. He found himself at the obituary pages, columns of close-set type dominated by the photo of an unknown defunct ex-senator. Then his eye fell on two announcements at the bottom of the page. One was too flowery for quick comprehension, but the other stated in bold plain type, The Forset funeral home regretfully announces it will no longer accept female cadavers. Slowly, he folded the paper, staring at it numbly. On the back was an item headed Navigational Hazard Warning in the Shipping News. Without really taking it in, he read AP Nassau The excursion liner Carib Swallow reached port under tow today after striking an obstruction in the Gulf Stream off Cape Hatteras. The obstruction was identified as part of a commercial trawler's sign floated by female corpses. This confirms reports from Florida and the Gulf of the use of such signs." some of them over a mile in length. Similar reports coming from the Pacific coast and as far away as Japan indicate a growing hazard to coastwide shipping. Alan flung the thing into a trash receptacle and sat rubbing his forehead and eyes. Thank God he had followed his impulse to come home. He felt totally disoriented, as though he had landed by error on another planet. Four and a half hours more to wait. At length, he recalled the stuff from Barney he had thrust in his pocket and pulled it out and smoothed it. The top item, however, seemed to be from Ann, or at least the Ann Arbor News. Dr. Lillian Dash, together with several hundred other members of her organization, had been arrested for demonstrating without a permit in front of the White House. They seemed to have started a fire in an oil drum, which was considered particularly heinous. A number of women's groups had participated. The total struck Allen as more like thousands than hundreds. Extraordinary security precautions were being taken, despite the fact that the president was out of town at the time. The next item had to be Barney's, if Alan could recognize the old man's acerbic humor. UP, Vatican City, 19th June. Pope John IV today intimated that he does not plan to comment officially on the so-called Pauline Purification cults, advocating the elimination of women as a means of justifying man to God. A spokesman emphasized that the Church takes no position on these cults, but repudiates any doctrine involving a challenge to or from God to reveal his further plans for man. Cardinal Fazzoli, spokesman for the European Pauline movement, reaffirmed his view that the scripture defines women as merely a temporary companion and instrument of man. Women, he states, are nowhere defined as human, but merely as a transitional expedient or state. The time of transition to full humanity is at hand, he concluded. The next item appeared to be a thin paper Xerox from a recent issue of Science. Summary Report of the Ad Hoc Emergency Committee of Femicide. The recent worldwide, though localized, outbreaks of femicide appear to represent a recurrence of similar outbreaks by some group or sect which are not uncommon in world history in times of psychic stress. In this case, the root cause is undoubtedly the speed of social and technological change, augmented by population pressure, and the spread and scope are aggravated by instantaneous world communications, thus exposing more susceptible persons. It is not viewed as a medical or epidemiological problem. No physical pathology has been found. Rather, it is more akin to the various manias which swept Europe in the 17th century, for example, the dancing manias, and like them should run its course and disappear. The Kiliastic cults which have sprung up around the affected areas appear to be unrelated, having in common only the idea that a new means of human reproduction will be revealed as a result of the purifying elimination of women. We recommend that 1. Inflammatory and sensational reporting be suspended, 2. Refugee centers be set up and maintained for women escapees from the focal areas. 3. Containment of affected areas by military cordon be continued and enforced. And 4. After a cooling-down period and the subsidence of the mania, qualified mental health teams and appropriate professional personnel go in to undertake rehabilitation. Summary of the Minority Report of the Ad Hoc Committee The nine members signing this report agree that there is no evidence for epidemiological contagion of femicide in the strict sense. However, the geographical relation of the focal areas of outbreaks strongly suggests that they cannot be dismissed as purely psychosocial phenomena. The initial outbreaks have occurred around the globe near the 30th parallel, the area of principal atmospheric downflow of upper winds coming from the intertropical convergent zone. An agent or condition in the upper equatorial atmosphere would thus be expected to reach ground level along the 30th parallel with certain seasonal variations. One principal variation is that the downflow moves north over the East Asian continent during the late winter months, and these areas south of it, Arabia, western India, parts of North Africa, have in fact been free of outbreaks until recently, when the downflow zone has moved south. A similar downflow occurs in the southern hemisphere, and outbreaks have been reported along the 30th parallel running through Pretoria and Alice Springs, Australia. Information from Argentina is currently unavailable. The geographical correlation cannot be dismissed, and it is therefore urged that an intensified search for a physical cause be instituted. It is also urgently recommended that the rate of speed from known focal points be correlated with wind condition. A watch for similar outbreaks along the secondary downwelling zones at 60 degrees north and south should be kept. Signed, for the minority, Barnhard Braithwaite. Alan grinned reminiscently at his old friend's name, which seemed to restore normalcy and stability to the world. It looked as if Barney was on to something, too, despite the prevalence of horses' asses. He frowned, puzzling it out. Then his face slowly changed as he thought how it would be, going home to Anne. In a few short hours his arms would be around her, the tall, secretly beautiful body that had come to obsess him. Theirs had been a late-blooming love. They'd married, he supposed now, out of friendship, even out of friends' pressure. Everyone said they were made for each other, he big and chunky and blonde, she willowy brunette, both shy, highly controlled cerebral types. For the first few years, the friendship had held, but sex hadn't been all that much. Conventional necessity. Politely reassuring each other privately, he could say it now, disappointing. But then, when Amy was a toddler, something had happened. A miraculous inner portal of sensuality had slowly opened to them, a liberation into their own secret, unsuspected heaven of fully physical bliss. Jesus, but it had been a wrench when the Columbia thing had come up. Only their absolute sureness of each other had made him take it, and now, to be about to have her again, trebly desirable from the spice of separation, feeling, seeing, hearing, smelling, grasping, he shifted in his seat to conceal his body's excitement, half mesmerized by fantasy. And Amy would be there, too. He grinned at the memory of that prepubescent little body plastered against him. She was going to be a handful, all right. His manhood understood Amy a lot better than her mother did. No cerebral phase for Amy. But Anne, his exquisite shy one with whom he'd found the way into the almost unendurable transports of the flesh. First the conventional greeting, he thought, the news, the unspoken, savored, mounting excitement behind their eyes. The light touches, then the seeking of their own room, the falling clothes, The caresses gentle at first, the flesh, the nakedness, the delicate teasing, the grasp, the first thrust. A terrible alarm bell went off in his head. Exploded from his dream, he stared around, then finally down at his hands. What was he doing with his open clasp knife in his fist? Stunned, he felt for the last shreds of his fantasy and realized that the tactile images had not been of caress, but of a frail neck strangling in his fist. The thrust had been the plunge of a blade seeking vitals. In his arms, legs, phantasms of striking and trampling bones cracking, and Amy... Oh God. Oh God. Not sex. Bloodlust. That was what he had been dreaming. The sex was there, but it was driving some engine of death numbly he put the knife away thinking only over and over it's got me it's got me whatever it is it's got me I can't go home the screw (laughs) fraud one word I got one word that time screwed it all up I would not want to eat a screw fry. Sounds like something you'd get at McDonald's. I'm rabidly anti-McDonald's because a couple years ago they took away the hot mustard sauce, and even though they have brought back the hot mustard sauce, they've still earned my undying enmity, and I refuse to go eat there. He was sweating heavily, stripped to his shorts in the hot box of what passed for a hotel room in Kayapan. Kayapan. Kiapan. Hold on. I just recorded like, I don't know, five minutes of stuff and realized that I'd never clicked the unpause button. So now I get to go back and record that all again. Yay for podcasting. It's the greatest thing I could have chosen to do. Literally everything except the first paragraph. He shifted in his seat to conceal his body's excitement, half-mesmerized by fantasy. I did not realize that this story went into these places. I'm so sorry, everybody.